If you have your Bibles, take them to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. I like that. That makes it helpful. Let's begin with prayer. Father God, we are thankful and grateful. And I pray that if we're not, that you would stir in our hearts to realize that you've put your word before us open in a gathering of your people and people that at least have uh, submitted to hear your word. So we ask that you bless this hour. Ask, Lord, that you would open these living words to us. We ask, Lord, that you would make known to us instruction for our edification, for our holiness. We ask that you'd make known the glories of Christ, that we would cease from sin. We ask that you would make known your ways to us. So help us now as we're in need of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Idleness is the problem that's within the church at Thessalonica. It's been something that's plagued them from the beginning, and it was motivated from outside of the church. It encouraged a sin in them that Paul has had to consistently instruct them about. These verses are the most most lengthy admonishment he gives them, at least in writing, about this sin. And we know from the constant mention in his letters to them that that comes from uh, bad theology about Christ's return his second coming. It comes from uh, listening to whispers from those that are influenced by the evil one uh, that the second coming has already happened or is happening um, quite quickly. And so in regards to that, they don't need to do anything. They don't need to worry about anything. They just need to sit and wait. And surprisingly enough, that's what some of them are doing. It's not simply that these people are lazy. This goes to a different degree. This, this, this comes from a, this awful understanding of what it means to be Christ's people as we await his return, his sure return. And they know that they know neither the day or the hour. They know, as Paul's instructed them both in person and by letter, that this is coming to them like a thief in the night. They know, as Paul has surely instructed them from Christ's own words, that even he doesn't know or forfeits the knowledge of the day and the hour. And there are a myriad of other instructions to keep them being fruitful uh, in their new life together as they are ambassadors that are left here to proclaim the gospel both in word and in deed. There are a myriad of instructions of how to do that 
while they await the second coming. But the problem is they're not listening to sound doctrine. They're listening to rumors and whispers of things that are false. And Paul, being so faithful to his office as an apostle, and even as he temporarily shepherds these people, he is faithful to the truth, to instruct them with the truth, to warn them with the truth, to correct them with the truth. And they are to be helped out of this current situation. So every church or gathering probably has some flavor of of sin that is prevalent in their midst, and this just happens to be theirs. I would hope that you and I today would be past this, but also we want to look at maybe how this lies dormant in our souls and maybe stirs up some idleness in us that we're not even aware of. So due to the confidence in the Lord and his work amongst and in the people, Paul trusts, as we read in verse 4, of 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul trusts that they will follow commands given by him from the Lord. Verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would not give you this command. We would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Therefore, as Paul trusts the Lord's work amongst them as they have surely received the word, he gives them this last command in three parts. Number one, keep away from the idol. Verse six, number two, not willing to work, you do not eat. Verse 10, and finally, work quietly and earn your own living. Verse 12. This is all in an effort to solve this problem in the church by admonishing those that are burdening the believers for no other reason than this, poor theology. Poor theology can lead to a myriad of sin in the church. And why does this matter? Why this instruction given? Why does he spend time on this, on this one specific topic, dealing with it, correcting it? Well, I think it's because the gospel must not be hindered in its work in them or its effectiveness to those who witness the gospel at work among them. If this isn't corrected, then it's going to hinder what people hear about the gospel because it's not going to be at work in and through them. They're just going to be sitting there waiting to receive the glory of the gospel without receiving the sanctification of the gospel or the living into, in the midst of the hope that they have that carries them through the life that they live until they arrive at holiness. And it requires moving. It requires, in order to obey the commands that Paul's giving them, 
um, in the Lord, it requires that they have to do something to obey those commands. You know, all of 1 Thessalonians talks about what the word is doing in them. <clears throat> I assume, we assume, that if the Lord is at work in you, we will see results from that. We're not just going to see the fact that you have hope in things to come. We're going to see the fact that that carries you through, that hope of things to come carries you through the things that are happening now. And it leads you to live in a different way than you have before. Causes you to react and speak to people in a different way. It causes you to work in a different way because of that hope. The gospel hope should never cause you to sit and wait in idleness. The gospel arouses you to move on its behalf pardon me, and in its hope. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, <clears throat> that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is what? At work in you believers. So Paul assumes that he's going to see some things happen because of the gospel in them. Why does he assume this? Because Paul has been transformed by the gospel. His unbelief was actually causing him to do laborious work to end this proclamation of this gospel. Now that he's been transformed by it, it's causing him to do another laborious work. And we know that by the fact that he says he works and he toils. He, he says that he works harder than any of the other apostles, but yet not, not him, but Christ in him. So the whole point being, we should never be stargazers, so to speak. Just looking up to the heavens and saying, you know what? Today, it might happen. So I'll just stay right here in case I miss it. And we've learned that the second coming is global. It's not isolated. It's not secret. It's not going to be a, a whisper. It's, it's not going to be on one news channel. It will sweep and, and harness the attention of the world. So be busy till he comes. He says in verse 6 something kind of astonishing. He says, keep away from any of these brothers who are walking in idleness. You know what that means? It means steer clear. And, and think about who he's talking about. Who are they supposed to steer clear of? Brothers who are walking in idleness. He's not talking about people that exist outside of the fellowship of the church. He's talking about people in the church. That leads or begs the question, um, how? How do you do that? Well, provided the steps are taken in Matthew 18 to, to correct somebody and bring them back on the way, assuming that's taken place, then we can begin to discuss, well, how do you discipline somebody? Well, we know from 1 Corinthians that Paul instructs them to deal with one brother 
uh, as, as not associating or not eating with him. In other words, not taking uh, the Lord's Supper with him. That's one way you can do that. Now, the way that we, the, the, the practice that we uh, take the supper in, it's easy to miss that. It's easy to hide from that, right? Here's a suggestion I'll make or a, or a thought we can meditate on. If you take the Lord's Supper as an actual meal, then the way that discipline can happen in that sense is by excommunicating or disinviting a brother that the church does not agree is, is walking according to the way or to, to the apostolic teaching. A brother who appears now as an unbeliever because he's unrepentant for whatever sin may happen. And so he is not invited to the gathering of God's people, partaking of a supper that commemorates how they became God's people. That's a pretty stark illustration. That's a pretty powerful illustration. That as you're gathered around a table, the brother who has strayed and the brother who has been unrepentant is not allowed at that table. You think that's just for discipline's sake? What's the point of that? Why does Paul instruct the Corinthians to do that? So that that brother can see how uh, in grave danger he is by uh, being outside of the fellowship, recognized by all of the fellowship. He is confronted with the fact that sin is living in him, and hopefully he returns. That's the goal of such a harsh thing. Discipline is painful for the moment, right? But through it, we could even see the salvation of some of our number who are actually unconverted. So the church has to do this. We have to recognize these brothers who are walking, maybe it's idleness or maybe it's some other way, and are not living in accordance with the gospel. Not perfectly. We don't expect each other to be perfect. But if there is someone who is in grave danger of, of not receiving the gospel fruit of glorification by their conversion, evidenced in the fact that they hold on to sin and would not repent from it, we have a duty to make that known to them. That's love. Which one of you let your kids play in the street because they want to? Which one of you spares the rod for them? You want them to know when they're out of order, out of line. And you know, that's what uh, idleness is really here. It's, it's, being, it's being disorderly, not disciplined, not keeping with apostolic teaching. He says at the end of verse 6 that those that are walking in idleness are also not in accord with the tradition they receive from us. This is, these are not just liturgical exercises that they're supposed to do when they gather together. No, the tradition that, that Paul is talking about is the teaching that he gave them. And we know this from 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. How? Either by spoken word or by our letter. Well, we know from the first letter 
what he told them, what he told them to do, how he told them to behave, how he told them to act, how he told them to encourage one another, how he even told them to hope in Christ who is to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. These idle brothers who still exist by the time we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, are not receiving the word as from the Lord that we read about earlier. They're not seeking to grow in faith. They're just seeking to receive. They're just waiting for something to fall from the sky and catch it. You know? It's not, it's not how you wait on the Lord. Now, and then Paul goes into what him and Silvanus and Timothy did as they taught them. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, we'll look back there quickly. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel. So if you fast forward now to where we're at in 2 Thessalonians, he says, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul is telling them that he and his brothers, has a right, a, a legal right within the church to receive support from them. But he also recognizes as a missionary in this fledgling church that it would be more of a burden to them and not as beneficial as not receiving support. And I debated whether to give you this example or not because I don't like to talk about things that I've done um, that, that shed a, a, a good light on me as if I did something good. No, the Lord worked this in me and led me to this. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. But I was an interim pastor at a church who was very financially strapped, who even owed previous pastors money that for some reason those pastors were making them pay. And they had, by the end of every week, no money in the bank while still trying to pay me. And so the, the, the benefit uh, there to be gained from receiving money from them was not as great as the benefit to be received if I didn't take money from them. So I said, stop. Pay off these jokers who are making you pay them money. And let's get healthy. Okay, I had a right to receive their support. But the, to their benefit, it was better that they don't pay me. And you know what that freed up? That freed up the word tremendously. For them to receive it and to be not so burdened financially to where they couldn't focus on anything else. Paul talks about his right to support from the church in 1 Corinthians 9 and then in 2 Corinthians 7 through 9. Or did I... Commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you 
free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening any of you. You know who those brothers eventually came to be who supported Paul while he worked in other churches? The Thessalonians. They eventually provided for Paul so he could do what he did amongst them. But at this point in time, when they're getting started and things are just happening, and there's this missionary effort that is multiplying in their midst, Paul says, no, focus on the word. And he did what he had to do to make that possible. And eventually, they were at a point where he accepted a benefit from them to do the same thing in another church. It's, it's a beautiful scene of this gospel cycle of how we multiply each other, multiply ourselves. Think about the Thessalonian church at this point in time, too. They probably wouldn't have much to give. I mean, people in that point in time, you know, one cloak that probably had patches on it. They didn't really have a way to preserve their food for weeks at a time like we do, so they were gathering their daily food. Weren't wake, making uh, much, most people, in, in way of money. And so Paul did not take advantage of his rights for their good. Now, let's talk about these people that are not willing to work. It says in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So waiting for the second coming in idleness, they're living off the church, they're abusing the grace of the church because we do have a responsibility to each other to take care of each other, don't we? I mean, that was inherent and foundational to the early church. One of the first things they did was sell fields or whatever they had to care for each other, to make sure that the daily provision of the saints was met in their midst. They have, we have that responsibility to each other. But these guys, and maybe ladies, were abusing that grace. They had opportunity. They were just sitting in their bad theology, waiting for something in a way that they're not supposed to wait for it. And Paul's remedy is, is, if that's the case, don't eat. I think part of that instruction is, don't come to the Lord's Supper. Plus, don't receive any help from the church. The, these people, uh, the Greek word for this form of idleness, or not willing, uh, implies that they're not even inclined to work. Like, they're not even inclined to be busy. It's not that they're having a hard time finding opportunities. It's just that they're not willing to do it. They won't even try. 1 Timothy 5.13, Paul speaks to kind of this situation that's going on with a church that Timothy's dealing with. He says, besides that, he's talking about widows here. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So if they're not busy doing what the Lord has called them to do, instructed them to do, they find other ways to be busy. 
while they wait. And one of the ways that that naturally happens is they get involved in other people's affairs. They get concerned about what everyone else is doing because they're not doing anything. 1 Peter 4.15 says, uh, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, which carries the idea of being a, a busybody. Concerned about what everybody else is doing, but not what you should be doing. This is a horrible problem in the church if it happens. Because then it creates discontent, it creates division, it creates distraction by that division, and it takes away from the gospel. It takes away from loving each other according to the gospel. And it supplies the church with more gossip and therefore more lies and therefore more disunity. In a disunified, disjointed world, they should be able to look into church and see a unity in the midst of diversity that is supernatural. Why on earth would these people gather and love each other in such a way? Answer, because we are in Christ by one faith and one baptism, by the power of one gospel, with one hope in mind. There is so much to be concerned about that we should have very little time to meddle. There is so much to be concerned about that I would argue we shouldn't even be named busybodies at all, but we should be named those who pray, those who seek the Lord, those who are wanting to multiply their joy and each other's joy by knowing him more now, so that when they're presented before him in glory and made perfect in his presence, they receive a grand gift in that revelation. They receive the fruits of their labors, their hope in Christ, and service to him while they waited for him. We have a lot of holiness to get to before we get there. So there is much labor to be done. Verse 12. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So Paul has bookended this section with a command and ends it with a command. He encourages them in the Lord Jesus Christ to do what? Be quiet, eat their own bread. I think he is focusing on a type of work for these people who are inclined to this type of sin to do something that's free from distraction or gives you not much opportunity to talk. These people may be inclined to be uh, busier about talking and meddling in affairs than working, so therefore they need to find something to do that's quiet. Maybe that's isolated. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed 
intelligent. You know, there's a, there's a quote that plays off of this, and nobody knows who said it. It's either Abe Lincoln or Mark Twain or somebody named Mrs. Goose or who knows who said it, okay? But Proverbs 17:28 is, is the gist of it, but it's said like this, Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. Obviously, the people who are walking in this idleness and meddling in people's affairs are fools. Fools in their understanding of the hope to come. Fools in what that means for their life today and tomorrow. Fools in thinking that it's more important to talk about what other people are doing than maybe what the Lord is doing. And so they say things that are stupid. They don't need to talk. They need to focus on God. They need to remain silent at His feet and listen and grow. They need to they need to watch and pray as they move through life. They need to do their work without proclamation of what they're doing. They need to do it as unto the Lord. Understanding that there is a reward to come at His second coming. At which hour they don't even know what it is. But I love this quote. I've learned to live my life by this quote. Because there was a point in time, especially when I was a lot younger, that I opened my mouth a lot. And I sounded really stupid. And I thought, you know what? Even though I am kind of stupid, if I stay quiet, people may get a different idea. And oftentimes, that's the case. Now, to close here, I want to look at Matthew 25. There's a couple parables here in Matthew 25 that, that show us what it is to be busy in the Lord's service while we hope in what is to come. In verses 14 through 46, we read a couple of these. These instructions from Jesus of what it will be like at His second coming for those who labored in service to Him and those who did not. And there's a grave warning in things to come. There's a grave warning for those who do not labor in service to him. And there is instruction here from him about what our work does. You can see there in verse 34 that the king, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. He's saying that in the midst of uh, how he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he's using the illustration of, look, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. And the righteous are going to say to him, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink and see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then he'll answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. They, they, they served in the way that Jesus did and that Jesus calls them to. They weren't self-focused. They weren't self-obsessed and absorbed. They weren't intent on what only they were going to gain. They were intent on what people needed now and forever. Now and forever. We live in a temporary state 
But as long as today is called today, there is something to be done. And while it seems temporary for today, everything is leading up to this eternal moment where even our careless words will be judged. So even if you choose not to act, the things you say will be brought into account. Jesus' example of righteousness and obeying the will of God was what? Service. He came to serve and not to be served. So we do that. We clothe the naked. We feed the hungry. We see the sick and visit them. We even visit those in prison with hope of what's to come. Paul says in uh, his first letter to the Thessalonians, take these words and encourage each other with them. Why did he encourage them? To press on, to press forward, to endure, to grow in the faith, despite all the opposition against such a thing. And if we look at 1 Timothy 5.8, kind of has this formula to it. No work equals no faith. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's an unwillingness to do so. And I would argue from bad theology that you don't need to do so. That you don't need to worry about temporary needs because, hey, Christ is coming. Well, it's been... 2,000 years since the church at Thessalonica existed in Paul's day, and he hasn't been here yet. So how many countless generations have come and died while we're waiting? So we don't know when. Could be generations yet to come. So you can't wait your whole life. We have to serve the Lord and obey his commands. By not doing so, Paul says to Timothy, they're worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> they, they don't believe what Jesus said or what Jesus did. They don't believe the apostolic teaching that was received by the church as from the Lord. They don't encourage one another. They don't help one another. They don't warn one another. They don't provide for one another. They deny everything that Jesus instructed us to do while we're here. And why does this matter, really, in accordance with the gospel? Well, the gospel calls us to be about the Lord's kingdom coming and preparations for that coming, which I would argue uh, really boil down to preparing his bride for him. So all of us collectively growing in holiness is being made pure without spot, blameless to be presented to him, on that last day. There's a lot of work involved in that. And in the meantime, there's fruitful labor in and to the name of Jesus as a proclamation of the gospel's effectiveness in our lives. People are supposed to see our good works and glorify who? God. Therefore, recognizing a gospel effectiveness in us that is foreign to the world. 
the way that we serve in integrity, the way that we serve people who don't deserve it, the way that we give to each other, help each other, the way that we move as hands and feet of his body, as he directs us, as the head gives evidence that we believe we're tied to him in a certain way so that everything we do is how he's instructed us to move. Is there pain and toil and sweat involved in this? Yes. We were promised that in the Garden of Eden. But God did not remove all fruit from our labor. Instead, God promised in Christ to redeem our labor. That it would be glorifying to him, edifying to us, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are guaranteed, much like Adam was before the fall, we are guaranteed in Christ to see and receive eternal fruits of our labor in the hope that he's coming, and in his coming will be rewarded, namely by the fact that we are living with him in his righteousness and glory. So we press on. We do the things that we do because of that hope. If hope causes you to be idle, then it is not hope. It's not hope. But if hope causes you to press on and to move forward, obeying the commands of Christ, then you have real hope. James says, show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So whatever Christ has called you to do, do it to his glory. Respond to him now. Ask him to empower